gospel, if you would take out the word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We continue our study through the book of Philippians. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. We've called this joyful witnesses and we hear the words of a joyful witness, the Apostle Paul, who is in shackles as he pens this letter to a church in Philippi that he loved so much, that he had sacrificed so much for, a church that is living in joy and ministering to his needs, and they've sent Epaphroditus to take care of Paul, to, to bring him gifts, resources, and along the way, Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome, he gets sick and to death, and yet he perseveres. He ministers to Paul, and Paul sends him back with this letter. And it is a letter that the Lord Jesus knew we would be reading today. In the plan and design of God, he knew we would come across the words that we are about to study in this book, the Bible, inspired words from God. And so he knew that you would need to hear these words today. It's his plan. It's his purpose. And to acknowledge that as we prepare to hear the words of Christ, we stand in reverence to these words. Because they're not the words of, of mere man by the Holy Spirit. They are the words of a king. And when a king speaks, we listen. When a king speaks, we bow and surrender. And so I pray in your heart today that you would surrender to the word of Christ. John, you want to? Read it for us. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so, here, I thought that was John reading it out loud. It was someone's phone. <laughs> so I say, all right, John. I thought, thought dementia was already setting in. You're just going to read it out loud. So, let's, let's hear the word of Christ. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Oh God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our church family that's gathered here today to hear your word, to apply the gospel to our lives. And yet as we, we stand ready, God, we know we need your spirit. We need your power. And God, we ask for conviction because we want to be more like Christ. And we ask for grace to be more like Christ as we apply your word power of your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure this is a great idea. I'm really not sure you guys should actually do this. Those words, those sentences were, they pierced me and they were actually a shock to me as I sat and listened to them. I was seated with my now wife, Danae, and we were preparing to, to get married, and we had just taken one of those personality tests where we were trying to figure out each other's personality and likes and dislikes and 
how we were going to be compatible. And so we spent some time taking that test and the results were right before us. And we were excited to see just how compatible we were, except we weren't at all. We were on the opposite ends. I don't know how those personality tests work, but we were actually on the opposite ends of that the spectrum. Uh, she was one way and I was the other, and you couldn't be more different. And it was to the point that the person who was doing the premarital counseling, he said these words, I don't know if this is a good idea. And I was in Orlando, Florida, and I thought, well, it going to have to be a good idea because there's a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort that's going into this. So I was a little bit disappointed. Uh, I guess up until that point, we had just ignored how different we were, you know, when you're in love and you're sort of blind to those things. And ever since that moment, I don't make couples do a personality test, but one of the things that I do is prepare them for what you're getting into. This person is not everything you think they are. You're not as compatible as you think. And you've been living in a little fairy tale that's about to become real life called marriage. And we've got to talk about how actually incompatible you were. But Danae and I never thought we would be that different. But it's true. I grew up in a small town in Lewisburg, Tennessee. She spent most of her life in the city, in, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Danae, she sees the world in all of these fantastic colors and uh, texture, and I'm just sort of black and white. And people say, what's your favorite ice cream? It's chocolate. Chocolate with what? Nothing, just chocolate. And Danae, she, I, 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 she prepares her day. I, I, I see it as like a sphere. It's like a, it's a sphere of ideas. And there are ideas that she has in her mind, and there are certain ideas that she might dive into during the day with me, I plan out my day, a schedule, every 30 minutes are taken up by a certain thing, and there's a list right in front of me, and we couldn't be more different as we carry out our days. I'm very concrete, and Danae is amazingly creative. And I could just go on and on about how we, how we communicate, how we deal with conflict, and I will tell you, there, there is no one on the planet who is more different than me than my wife. And in that moment, the person on the other side of the table was scandalized by it. In their mind, they were, they were thinking, how in the world did you two ever end up together? How did you find each other? And this is going to be tremendously hard. And, and when I'm hearing those things and I'm reading the, the numbers and the results on the paper, I read them the way I would read anything in black and white. This is not good. This is a bad idea. Look at the numbers. Look how different we are. This, how is this going to work? This isn't adding up. And, and, I, and Danae's like, what? A test? Really? Marriage isn't about a test. Marriage is about love. Marriage is about Jesus. Marriage is about the gospel. And I'm thinking, yeah, but marriage is about compatibility and we're not compatible. How is this going to work out? And today, Danae has certainly lived up to those words because she committed in that way and has had to deal with me in light of the gospel and because I'm still thinking about the numbers on the page as I do every day. But it was good for one reason. We were, had to realize what we were getting into. And 
as believers begin to show up at the church, churches in the New Testament, there wasn't a compatibility test for them. Because if there was, they would have failed it. As the gospel began to move from Jerusalem to places like Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, we see the gospel moving from the Jewish center into pagan idolatry, even to the ends of the earth, Gentile capitals of the world. And we begin to see the two, two groups of people on the planet who had no business gathering together, Jews and Gentiles, having to gather in churches. Life and culture was separated. You had the Jews and you had the Gentiles. And throughout history, there was, there was no two groups of people who hated each other more than Jews and Gentiles during this time. The racial tension was worse than it's ever been. They loathed each other. Gentiles, they pride themselves in circumcision, tradition, the festivals. They pride themselves in, in the food that they eat. And they looked at Gentiles as dogs. Dirty, disgusting dogs. As a Jew would walk down the street and he would notice a Gentile, he would move to the other side of the street and he would spit at the Gentile. He hated him. And the Gentile resented the Jew for that. He was disgusted by his holier-than-thou religion that looked down upon him. And all of the sudden, they have to go to church together. All of the sudden, they're showing up for fellowship meals. And the food is right before them. The Jew and the Gentile. What are we going to eat? We're incompatible. The way you dress... The way you carry out your life, we should not be together. This is a bad idea. This ain't going to work. And yet, Paul, over and over in his letters, deals with this tension in light of the gospel. And it sets the tone, the incompatibility of believers in the church. It sets the tone for the text we're going to look at today. As we were reminded, there was and there is and there always will be until Jesus returns, conflict and tension in the church. Church life has little to do with compatibility and everything to do with the gospel. And it always has. That's why Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, he wants to remind them we are family. He's used this word brothers, brother, over and over seven times now to remind them we are family in the gospel. And as Paul begins to get to what some people believe is the point of the whole letter in the next verse, he's going to deal with conflict. He does so reminding them we are family. And then he reminds them whom I love. Love is a commitment to another person's good, no matter what it costs you. But then Paul even describes that love even more when he says, whom I long for. This is deep affection. This is desire for another person's good. So Paul is saying, not only am I committed to your good, I desire it. More than anything, I want your good. And then notice how he describes the church. You are my joy. You are my gladness. This has been the theme of the letter. That you can have deep abiding contentment in the gospel no matter your circumstances. 
And isn't it beautiful the way that Paul describes the church? Paul's in prison. He suffered for the gospel. And yet he will look at this church standing in the gospel and he says, you're my joy. That's why I'm in prison for you. And so I can be happy because you're standing in the gospel no matter what it costs me. And then he describes them as his crown. This is a wreath made of leaves that we see often from this time that was given to a runner who would run a race. And Paul says, I am running this race. I am suffering for the sake of the gospel. I've been beaten. I've been in chains. I'm in prison right now. But you make me happy because you're standing in the gospel. You're my trophy. All of the pain, all of the endurance, the stitches in my side for running this race. Oh, I'm, I'm running because you're the reward. You're the trophy. You're the win. That's why I do it. And notice, he says, in light of the way he thinks about them, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, the word stand firm there, it, it is the, the picture of a soldier who is in battle. And he's preparing to, to take off and charge the enemy. A a soldier in battle who sees the enemy coming and and yet he's digging in and he's ready to fight. And what Paul says is, we've talked a lot about joy. We've talked a lot about happiness. But I want to remind you, you're in a fight for that happiness. you got to stand firm in it. And notice he says, stand firm, fight, be ready for battle in the Lord. And so the strength he's talking about here isn't a strength you have to be happy, to have joy. No, it's a strength in the Lord. That's where your happiness, your joy comes from. We might say, Paul is saying, stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in the gospel. Paul describes what this looks like in the book of Ephesians when he talks about the armor of God. And he talks about the helmet of salvation the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of readiness, the sword of the Spirit. He talks about having the gospel on your feet, ready to take it to the nations. And he says, you're outfitted in armor. But as we look at that armor, we say, what is it? What's the armor of the gospel? Salvation, righteousness of Christ, readiness around your your waist to to charge the world with a mission, the sword of the Spirit, the gospel, the gospel. You're outfitted in the gospel. Literally what Paul would say to the church in Ephesians, and this isn't just about individuals. We often read Ephesians in the armor of God as I'm an individual and i got to pray these things on. No, what he says is as a church, the church is already covered in the gospel. The church already has the gospel. If you're in the church, Christ died for you. Now what you do is you stand in that. You believe those promises. And what Paul says here is if you're going to have joy and contentment the way that I do as I write from a prison cell, you've got to stand in the gospel. You've got to always remember that Jesus died for your sins. He paid your penalty under the wrath of God. And so you can have happiness that your sins are forgiven, even in difficulty, even in suffering. Jesus has been raised up from the dead. 
by God, you will be raised up from the dead. Stand in that reality no matter what you endure. Jesus is at the right hand of God and He has promised in the Gospel a kingdom where you will rule and reign with Jesus forever. Stand in that promise. Believe that promise. No matter what's going on in the world around you, stand firm in the Lord. And Paul says, that's what will make me happy. And Paul is willing to work for it. He's like the parent who says to the kid, I just want you to be happy. As parents, sometimes we're so committed to that, we will do things that at the end of the day may not actually make our kid happy. We just want them happy in the moment. We work, we endure, so our kids are happy and they're full of joy. And Paul says, that's what I want for you as my children in the gospel. But Paul's point here is you will only be happy in the gospel. And so I'm going to fight for your joy in the gospel. That's what will bring me happy. And so when I ask you the question today, are you happy to make sure others around you are happy in Jesus? Is, is that the other-centered approach you have to life and even church? Is that you show up and what makes me the happiest is that you're believing the gospel and you're encouraged by the gospel. You want to have joy this week? There are so many things that overwhelm us. There are things we are so worried about. There's things that we're stressed about. You want to have happiness this week? Make it your aim to make sure others are happy in the gospel. Be intentional about it. Wake up tomorrow morning and say, who am I going to call today and remind of the gospel? I know a sister in our church and she's struggling with doubt. She's going through a very difficult time in our life and she's believing that this difficulty is God's judgment on her life. I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call her and I'm going to say, this isn't God's judgment. Jesus died for you. Believe the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. I know a brother who's going through chemotherapy right now. And, and I can only imagine in his gut there is the fear of death. I'm going to call him this week and remind him, Jesus raised from the dead. You don't have to fear death. Stand in the gospel, brother, because that's where your joy comes from. You know, some of the happiest people in our church right now, are, it's... We try to explain it this way. We don't have a mission team. We don't have a segmented group that does missions. We are the mission team as a church. We are going to be a part of that. But there is this little group of people in our church, and they're not so little anymore, who they are so committed to seeing the gospel taken to the nations that right now, and they're the group that I feel the sorriest for because they can't go anywhere right now. But they're praying, they're even training to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're having events here during the week, inviting international folks to come. They're learning about other religions. This week, I think they learned about Islam. I, sometimes I show up the building and say, who's here? Oh, it's the missions group. It's the international group. And they literally are the happiest people in our church because they've given themselves over to that in a very difficult time in their lives. They want to be somewhere else. <laughs> They want to be around the world with the gospel, and yet they're happy because they're giving themselves over to making the nations glad in the gospel, even if it's just prayer right now. And we're going to save a lot of money and send them all around the world next year. But, but is, is that what you've given yourself over to? No matter what, I want to see others happy in the gospel, standing in the gospel. Paul says that's, what, that's where joy comes from. And notice he says here, that's going to lead, standing in the Lord leads to agreeing in the Lord. Notice verse 2. 
He says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. Now notice the emphasis there. He calls them out by name. Now, if you're in the church, you're part of the church in Philippi, you probably know what's going on. And you, you probably knew Paul was going to address this at some point. So you're, you're seated in your pew and you've heard all about joy and suffering. You've heard all about Jesus. And then you hear the names of the two sisters here. And you're like, here we go. We knew he was going to bring this up. We've heard about how Paul deals with conflict. And so we better buckle in for a few more chapters. But notice it's one sentence. I entreat Eodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And that's all he says. Remember when Paul first went to Philippi. It was a city where there wasn't enough men. Because it was very, it was dominated by Gentile, by Roman rule. There wasn't enough Jewish men to have a synagogue, which is usually what Paul did when he went into a city or a town. And so he went down by the river and there were women that were working there. And he began to preach the gospel. And a lady named Lydia, a fashionista, lots of money, probably had a big house. She gets saved and she begins to host the church in her home. And then probably what happened was these two women here, Iodia and Syntyche, were also women there that day who believed the gospel. And they became leaders in the church. And something happened. And we don't even know what it is. It's not even Paul's intention to bring up what their conflict is. But they're in disagreement. And all Paul says to them, he calls them out by name and says, agree in the Lord. And if you're in the pew, you go, hold on, hold on, Paul, that's not going to do. We need to deal a little more publicly. We, we need to really dig in with this conflict, with this controversy. You don't know it's tearing our church apart. You need to say more to these women in this letter. And all he says is, I agree in the Lord. Because his point is, if you're standing in the gospel and you're believing the gospel, you're going to begin to treat others in light of the gospel. And you're going to treat one another in light of the gospel. And you're going to be united in the gospel. To agree in the Lord literally means to think the same way. To have the same mind. And the mind he has described to us is the mind of Christ. The one who had all glory, all authority, all power. And what does he do? He doesn't cling to his glory. He doesn't cling to his authority. He becomes a man. He becomes a slave. He becomes a curse on the cross for the good of others. And he says, that's how you pursue unity in the church. That's how you deal with conflict in the church. That's all I got to say is agree in the Lord. Be united by being like Jesus. And if both of you are trying to be like Jesus, the conflict will take care of itself. Paul's not micromanaging it. He's not giving tips for conflict resolution. Just agree in the Lord. One of the most beautiful things about that phrase is, if you are agreeing in the Lord, you're standing in the gospel and you're pursuing to agree in the Lord, what you're going to be thinking most of, Paul has described here, is the interest of others more important than yourself. Agreeing in the Lord means both parties say, your interests are more important than mine. And so when I come to conflict, I have to ask the question, what do you need most right now? I'm not thinking about what I want. Do it my way. Change. 
Now, I come to the conflict and go, what do you need? And the answer is grace, mercy, forgiveness, love. You need to taste, feel, and hear the gospel. And it's my responsibility that you do. That's in your best interest. But you know, thinking that way in conflict also serves your interest. Because what is your best interest? What's in the best interest for you is you to live like Jesus and to be more like Jesus. So when you're thinking of the interests of others, first and foremost, you're being like Jesus. You see how that works in conflict? So if I go in and say, what what do you need the most? Because I'm going to be like Jesus and I'm going to serve your interest. And then you get grace and you get mercy and I get to be like Jesus. That's what it means to agree in the Lord. That's what it means to stand in the Lord. And so in all of your conflict right now, you're seated here today and life is full of conflict. Some of us want to avoid conflict. We want to not have conflict. We shy away from it. Some others of us love it. Conflict is a reality and conflict is designed to make you more like Jesus. And so when conflict occurs... You should be racing the other person to be more like Jesus. And the question in all of your conflict is, who is going to be more like Jesus? I'm going to be more like Jesus first. I'm going to get to grace first. I'm going to get to mercy first. I'm going to outrun you to forgiveness. I'm going to outrun you to love. Because I want to be like Jesus. And I'm going to serve you in that way. And so the question in conflict is, who will pursue the other one first? Who will repent first? Who will stop thinking the worst first? Who will give the benefit of the doubt first? Who will relinquish judgment first? Who will offer grace first? Who will serve the other person despite their sin first? Who will let go of rage first? Who will confess wrong first? Who will grant forgiveness first? Because you want to humbly be like Jesus. And so you race to do it. And so you're almost competing with one another to agree in the Lord. I'm going to get there first because that's what you need and that's what I need to be like Jesus. Notice he continues, this is how these women would resolve the conflict, standing in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord. And in verse 3 he says, yes, I ask also true companion. We don't know who this is. It could have been Epaphroditus, a leader, a friend in the church that he calls on to help. Notice, help these women who have labored side by side with me. And then he he goes even further with me in the gospel together with Clement. And this many believe this was a pastor of a church in Rome. He actually wrote letters to Corinth and the rest of my fellow workers. So notice side by side in the gospel together and then fellow workers. The picture he paints of these women, they're not unbelievers. They're yoked with him in the gospel. These are fellow workers. They're not someone who needs to be written off. We need them on the mission together. It's like two ox under a yoke. They're headed in the same direction. Right now they're fighting to go in different directions and we're off course. And so he reminds them, they're fellow workers. We're all on the same page. And the issue here is the whole church must resolve to prize mission over preference. It's obvious that these two women had preferences. But they were still on the same mission. And at some point, they elevated their preferences over the mission. And there was discord. There was conflict. 
And Paul just reminds them, we need these women. We've got to get them back on course together. They're fellow workers. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to prize mission over preference. The mission is to make disciples of all nations. We've got to get back on course, and that's got to lead us. I'll never forget one of the first Sundays I was in Richmond, and we had made a decision. Ashland Avenue had adopted Cross Point. It was the Ashland Mission. And we made a, a, a decision on how are we going to do small groups. And I knew the conversation coming all week, and I was going to have to announce, well, we're not going to have Sunday school anymore. We're going to do what we call Bible fellowship groups. It just logistically was hard to do Sunday school at 9 a.m. We didn't have space for it. And didn't, we believe Bible fellowship groups and the way that we do them now would work better. And I knew that conversation was coming all week, and I knew the first person I had to tell was Glenn Pruitt. And I'll never forget standing out in the parking lot at the Richmond Arts Center, and I remember telling him, hey, we're about to cancel Sunday school. Well, what are we going to do? And you know how Glenn, like when you're in a tense moment with Glenn, he sort of lifts back like that. And it's the first time I experienced it. I didn't know if he's like reaching back to punch me. Or, but how, and in his mind, if you're raised in a context where there's Sunday school, you're thinking, how in the world do you do church without Sunday school? How's this even going to work? Oh, we wanted to reach people in Richmond with the gospel. We wanted to be a church that was committed to the word of God. And now you're taking Sunday school away. How in the world, in his mind, that can't happen? And I remember just talking him through it. And he got to the end and he said, if that's what you want to do, let's go. And I'll tell you this, from that second on, Glenn Pruitt has been the best Bible fellowship group leader in the life of this church that we've ever seen. There's no comparison. I'm sorry, BFG leaders. He, he is committed to the mission. And he was willing to set his preference aside. And we've seen people in his BFG come to faith in Christ. We baptized Charlie Hatton several years ago. I think he was 83 at the time. A man that Glenn had shared the gospel with. And then his BFG began to love on this man. Take him to ball games. Invite him into the BFG. He came to faith in Christ right before he died. All kinds of great things that have happened in that BFG. Can you imagine if he stood there that day and said, no way, Sunday school or else. I prefer Sunday school. And I ain't getting on board with this. No, he said the mission is more important. And that's the way we all got to function. Some of us want Ashland students to meet here on Wednesday night. But we have a wanna, And so you got you to gotta put your preference aside for the sake of the mission. Some of you, and I hear you, and I hear you loud and clear today because we've got a lot of people here at 11. You want one service. I got you. We got it. Time to go back to one service. Enough of this. I'm done. I got it. I got it. But there are people that will not come to church if we have one service right now. So we're going to have two for the sake of the mission. I'm going to put my preference aside for the sake of the mission. I'm exhausted on Sunday. And yet we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to do what we got to do for the sake of the mission. Why? We cannot elevate preference over mission. We display the mission is the most important thing, and that's what Paul calls the church to do. But notice how he describes these women, their co-workers. But notice their names are in the book of life. Now, in the book of Revelation, we see a really a detailed description of what the book of life is. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in heaven, there seems to be a book. 
that all believers' names are written in. Even the book of Revelation said it's so secure when someone believes the gospel. Believers are so secure that their names are written by the blood of the Lamb even before the foundation of the world. And in the book of Revelation, that is so important because there becomes persecution, there becomes the great tribulation. And what, what the writer of Revelation is saying is those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will not compromise. They will not worship the Lamb. They will not take the mark of the beast because they are secure and they are written in God's book. And that's how he describes these two women. Because the tendency would be to say, they're a distraction to the mission. And Paul says, no, 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 we need them on the mission. And then the tendency would be to say, well, if they're going to act like that, they can't even be Christians. He says, no, God has written them in the book of life. That They are secure by the blood of Christ in God's book and plan. And there are times where we have to set people down. And we have to look them in the eye and we have to say, you're not acting like a Christian. And by the, the way that you're acting and the things that you say, we got to be careful that you are a Christian. we got to do that at times. And then there are times where people believe things about the Bible and they buy into things that aren't true and they even begin to teach things that aren't true. And we have to look them in the eye and we have to say, that's not biblical, that's a false gospel. We have to do that at, this, at times. So I want to be clear about those things. But Paul says... That ain't the issue here. They're fellow workers, and God has sealed their names, their souls, by the blood of Christ. And so as you deal with this conflict, you're dealing with those for whom the Lamb's blood was slain. And they are marked in God's book. And God has written them in, so you can't write them off. You've got to work for unity. You've got to work to resolve the conflict. And so as you go in and you begin to deal with Iodia and Syntyche and conflict in the church, your tone and your spirit and the way that you use your words, you always have to remember I'm dealing with someone for whom Jesus has died. But how often do we want to make every disagreement damning? That's the tone we carry. If you, don't, if you don't agree with me, I don't see how you can be a Christian. You don't say it my way, I don't, I don't see how you can be a Christian. Do you know how much of that's going on right now in the world? By Christians? You don't wear a mask? You don't love your neighbor? Can't be a Christian. You wear a mask? Can't be a Christian. And we treat every controversy as damning. And you know what it does? The gospel loses credibility. Because if everything is an eternal conflict, nothing is an eternal conflict. Do you understand that? If we fight and we bicker about everything, we have no credibility to fight about the gospel when we need to. Does that make sense? Because we are elevating all of these things as eternal. And they're not. And so if you're willing to walk away from a relationship right now, because someone will not agree with you on the death and fatality rate of COVID-19, then you're telling a lie about that person who claims to be a Christian, who's even a member of your church. It's a lie. 
You're saying something about them that's not true by disfellowshipping because that's not a damning issue. And Jesus is the one who said so because He wrote their name in His blood before God. And if they're accepted by God, we accept them as brothers and sisters even though, even though, I want to be very clear, there's things we get in the trenches and we sort out. And, and conflict is, this isn't, just forget about the conflict. No. If we are written in the book of life and we're Christians, that means we fight harder. And we dig in harder. And we don't let conflict just, just fester. and go. No, we dig in. Why? Because Jesus purchased you with His blood and you're valuable to Jesus. Your value isn't in doing what I want and doing what I say. Your value is in the blood of Christ and I want to treat you as such. And when we dig dig in and sort out conflict, that's what we're doing. There may be folks that you have to mute on Facebook. You can do that. You can stay friends and just, I forgot what it says, stay friends, but don't see their, do that. I've done it. Some of you here. I would say that was a joke, but it's not. But you may have to do that. You may have to do that with people in your own church so you can love them on Sunday. And you can run to them on Sunday and say, I disagree with you, brother, about 20,000 things. But I love you in Jesus because Jesus purchased you with His blood. You know, compatibility tests have very little to do with marriage. I've learned that over 22 years. Sinners by nature are incompatible. Whatever... Whatever thing that you come up with and you say, we like and we like and we like and we agree in this way, when you get down to it, you're both sinners and you're both selfish and you're both incompatible. And I've learned that over 22 years of marriage. And so now we prefer some of the same things. We like some of the same things. But compatibility doesn't tell the story. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of conflict. A lot of disagreement that's gone on in my marriage over the last 22 years. Fit throwing, that's what we call it in Tennessee. And that doesn't tell the story either. Hopefully the gospel does. And I can't look across the table or the room and say that woman is more like me after 22 years. But I will say this, having to deal with my sorry tale, she's more like Jesus than anybody I've ever met. And she grows in that joy day after day after day. Compatibility has very little to do with church life. We're sinners who gather here and we're incompatible by nature because we want what we want. And yet our compatibility can't tell the story. The gospel must. Our incompatibility can't tell the story. The gospel must. And some of you are here today and you're sitting around and you're going, why can't these people be more like me? Why can't they think more like me? Well, maybe you just need to get to work and being more like Jesus.